There we go. Good morning. We're so glad you guys are here with us today. It's a beautiful day, a great Easter day. This is our third Easter service. We've already had two full Easter services. We got one more to go, and so we're glad you guys took some time to spend with us. Uh, and, and so uh, Easter can be confusing. There's a lot, and we're going to kind of break it all down here in a minute, kind of talk through all of it. Uh, I did want to remind everybody that if you're new, we're so glad you guys are here. Stop by the welcome desk for a free gift. And then also, we started our Thursday services uh, this past week, and we had over 250-ish people at our first Thursday service, and those are going to be continuing uh, throughout. And so if you have weekend plans ever, or if you're you know, one of those people that just like to sleep in on the weekend, we got you covered. We have a Thursday service, 7 o'clock, and we would love to have you at one of those. And so Easter can be confusing. There's so much going on. There's so many elements to Easter, so many parts of Easter. Uh, there are things like the Easter Bunny, there are things like dying eggs, uh, there are plastic eggs, there are lilies, there's all these things. Um, and, and what's interesting is when we think about Easter, if you've ever taken the time to actually study it, um, the word Easter that we get is a transliteration of another word, it's the word Ishtar. Ishtar was the goddess of fertility that they would celebrate every spring, and so lilies and eggs and bunnies and all of that is connected to this fertility thing and if you're a kid and don't know what that means your parents can explain it to you later and so uh, all of this stuff and so there's all these elements that can be a little bit confusing and then there's us and so we're here for a specific reason uh, most of us and so we're here to to talk about a specific element of easter that we believe is kind of the foundation for the holiday itself and, and so it can mean all sorts of things to all different people and there's all these things we try to fit into Easter and try to explain with Easter. But I think for us to understand the personal implications for each one of us of Easter and while we make such a big deal of it, um, I think that we have to take a moment and pause and look back at the original story. And the reason this is important to kind of pause and kind of work through some of these details is this, is that, you know, every year people come to Easter services and Christmas services. And to be honest with you, as a preacher, it, it's kind of stressful. You would think that it wouldn't be, but it is be, because um, it's kind of the same story, right? It's not like every year there's new details that emerge and we can add elements to it. It's kind of the same story. And so, so most of you guys, just like the guy in the video, even if you're a little confused, you know the basic details of the Easter story and what we celebrate. But in order to kind of understand the personal elements of it, what I want us to do is just take a time out and to pause and to look back at those first moments as this story starts to emerge. And so we're going to take a look at the moment that's just occurred, that Jesus has just been crucified. And here he is, and he's hanging on a cross, and there's a crowd that is gathered. And it's weird to think of, in our culture, this idea that there's a man being crucified, which was this gruesome and terrible way for a person to be killed, and yet there's a crowd of people there watching this whole thing. And there's people there that are just watching the spectacle of what's going on. Well, we know that Jesus had these disciples that followed him, and, and most of them, after Jesus is arrested, they kind of flee. But there's a few of them that made it that day to kind of watch this thing as it unfolds. We know in that crowd that there are some women who's followed Jesus since his early days in Galilee. And so these women are there, and they're experiencing this, this moment. We know that his mother is in the crowd there's also these religious leaders that are in the crowd, and, and these religious leaders are the, the men that have conspired against Jesus to eventually put him on the cross. And then we know that there's some Roman soldiers that were there that were tasked 
with carrying out this gruesome and heinous act of crucifying a person. And so there's a crowd, and they all have different feelings and emotions and elements in that crowd. And so there's a large crowd experiencing this moment of Jesus being crucified. But do you know who wasn't in that crowd? Who wasn't in that crowd were any Christians. There was no church. And at this point, there were no believers. When Jesus was crucified, all that's left in the remains is dozens of Galileans who are brokenhearted and overwhelmed that Jesus has died, a crowd just watching the spectacle, knowing that their religious leaders and their community had conspired with Rome to falsely accuse, try, and crucify, to many of them, the best human being that they'd ever known. You see, their belief was that Jesus wasn't supposed to die. Because one of the things that was claimed about Jesus was that he was Israel's Messiah. And the word Messiah, you've probably heard that if you've grown up in church, but the word Messiah is actually a Hebrew word that we translate into the Greek language, and it actually means king. And so for them, here they are, they're celebrating what they thought was Jesus' arrival as the king of Israel, and yet here in 24 hours, he's arrested, he's tried, and he's crucified. And the people watching, the people that have supported him, the people that are there, they're completely in shock. I mean, you got to remember just four days earlier, we celebrate this thing every year called Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is this event that takes place. It kind of starts the Holy Week where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and he's on his way into Jerusalem. And on his way into Jerusalem, um, the crowd starts to grow as him and his disciples make their way in. And as they're making their way into Jerusalem, it's going to be like this this epic moment where Jesus is finally in Jerusalem, like the epicenter of Judaism. And so Jesus is here. As he gets closer, the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and, and they start chanting these words. And at first, it's real religious. It's Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But, but then as Jesus gets closer to the city, it becomes political. Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then eventually, blessed is the king which had to put Herod, the local governor, and Pilate overseeing the region on notice that here is this man that these people are claiming to be a king. And in this moment, there's so much momentum and there's so much excitement. And these men and women who have been following Jesus for the last three years, they're kind of getting built up in their head that maybe finally Jesus is going to take off his rabbinic robe or his teacher robe. And he's finally in Jerusalem going to become the king that we've all been expecting. And then suddenly and unexpectedly, it's over. And they're looking at Jesus hanging on a cross, dying a criminal's death. Now, it's important to know that the goal of crucifixion in ancient times uh, was not just simply death. There were much faster and easier ways to kill somebody. The goal of crucifixion had a couple meanings. The, the first was the, the reason the Romans loved to crucify people was because when they did it, what it would do is it would, it would send a message to the community. And that message was you don't rebel against Rome. Stay in line, do what you're told, stay under control. And when they would crucify people, it was kind of this display for everybody to see that this is what happens if you get out of line, if you break the order. And it showed the power and the might of Rome. We know in history that there's these occasions where men and women are crucified and they're put on display, sometimes thousands at a time, to send a message 
to everyone who experienced it. The other goal of crucifixion was not only to send a message, but, but was actually torture. And, and the way it was, was they figured out that crucifixion was the perfect way to kill somebody, to send a message, but to also keep them alive long enough that it was a form of torture to wipe out the hope of not only the people that were watching, but also the person himself. And so crucifixion was this gruesome thing. And then because these were criminals often in the eyes of Rome that were crucified, um, after they were crucified and taken down off their execution stake, the bodies were just discarded. Or they were put into a pit and burned, maybe even in Gehenna, the place that Jesus refers to in his famous parable. And so these bodies of these men, the whole goal is that not only does it send this message, but once it's over, they're just wiped from oblivion and they're forgotten. Now, if you saw someone that was crucified and they meant something to you, they were important to you, they were a family member, what you could do sometimes is you could possibly bribe the soldiers. And the soldiers, upon taking the body down after the crucifixion, would possibly, if you bribed them right enough, give you the body of the person so you could bury them in a proper family burial. The gospel writers tell us that Nicodemus, who was a well-known religious leader in the city, and Joseph of Arimathea, who was a well-known and wealthy citizen in that community, they had actually done this. They had kind of went to the local governor, Pilate, and asked that the body of Jesus be given for a proper burial. And so the gospel writers tell us that Jesus' body, after he's dead, is taken down, and it's taken to a private tomb that had been purchased by Joseph of Arimathea. And so they take him to this tomb, and, and the reason they take bodies to the tomb like this is, is that they're going to seal the body up. They're going to wrap it up and put some linen on it and some spices, because as you can imagine after this crucifixion scene, but anybody, as it starts to kind of decompose, it starts to smell, and so they would put them into these tombs. And, and the reason they put them into tombs like this is because years or maybe decades later, what would happen is the family members or the loved ones of this person would come back to this tomb, and they would open it up, and all that would be left would be the bones. And so they'd take the bones, and they'd put them in what they called an ossuary box and it was called a bone box and then they would take these boxes and they would take them back to the place where their family kept these things as a remembrance kind of almost as we do with with tombstones and so Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea they prepared Jesus body for burial and the reason that they did this is because they were secret followers of Jesus and and even though at this point they had once believed he might actually be Israel's Messiah and King clearly now he's not because he's dead. But because he was such a good person, they believed that he did not deserve a criminal's, a common criminal's death and burial. And so they did what they did, could, and they took his body, and they put it in a tomb, and then they leave. And they go on to celebrate the Sabbath as every other Jewish person in that city and in that region would be. Now, while all of this is going on, about 1,500 miles away, there's a guy named Tiberius Caesar. He was the ruler of the world. Now, the way the Caesars were viewed in the Roman world, but they were living gods walking amongst men. And so here is this guy, the most powerful man in the world. And here's what you have to know. At this point, he has no idea any of this is going on. I mean, he would have cared less what was going on in this small region of Judea not realizing that maybe even Jesus existed or even the fact that he had been crucified. This was a common practice in their day to crucify people. It barely made a blip on the radar. Not far maybe from the actual scene of crucifixion, you have Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, and maybe he was even one of the ones who had conspired to put Jesus himself up on that cross and to be crucified. 
See, these guys, they had hoped that this troublesome rabbi who'd caused all this problem for them, that by crucifying, it would be the end of the movement. It would be the end of the message and that they could go on to the way things were before. And then you have Jesus' followers who in this moment, you know, Thomas has fled the city, we know at this point, because maybe he believes if they can get to Jesus, they can get to us. And if they can take out the leader, then what stops them from taking out us as followers? Peter, James, and John, other disciples, that they've huddled together somewhere in the city of Jerusalem, and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. They're trying to figure out what their next move is because they've invested, they've done everything to follow Jesus, and now he's dead. And Matthew, the tax collector, a guy who'd been an outcast in their community because of what he had chosen to do for a living, nobody would take him in. The only person that was going to be willing to give him a second chance has now been killed. And across town, there's some women gathered together, mourning the loss of their friend. And we know that in that scene is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Can you imagine what she must be going through? I mean, moms, to watch your son, to be standing in the crowd that day and watching him stripped of all of his dignity and all the worth and value that you believed, whether you believed at this point whether he was the son of God or just he was your son, can you imagine the shock? And so in this moment, right after the cross, you have several things going on. And the reason we're pausing here is because you have these citizens who probably even are confused by what just happened. And then you have these frightened ex-disciples. And then you have these broken-hearted women. And you have a broken-hearted mother. But one thing you would have not have found in that moment was anybody who still believed. The writers of the Gospels write themselves into the stories as men and women who at that point in the story, it's over. Nobody, including Jesus' mother, believed that he was the savior of the world. I mean, how could he be? He couldn't and wouldn't even save himself. So certainly he cannot save others. And certainly he is not the long-anticipated king of Israel. And at this point, nobody's planning on keeping the dream alive. They're going to go back to work or go back to where they came from or go back to the cities that they came from and try to get things back to normal. And if you're someone who used to be a person of faith, or you've walked away, or drifted away, or you've lost interest, or perhaps someone talked you out of it, then this is really important, this next idea. Because see, the reason they're all walking away is because of this. See, we often think the centerpiece of Jesus was his teaching. And so, you know, you come to church every week and guys like me wear microphones and we preach out of the gospels. We preach these words that Jesus said and, and all of these things. And so we think the center point of Jesus's ministry and who he was was his teaching. But the reality is, is that his teaching was incredibly impractical for the world that they live in. And even today, oftentimes it's incredibly impractical based on the culture that we live in. So here's an idea. Here's some of Jesus' teachings that he started the movement with. So here's a good one. Um, pay your taxes even to the empire that's conquered and wronged you. What a great way to start a movement by encouraging people to pay their taxes, right? Or how about this one? What you need to do is you need to actually love your enemies. And you need to pray for them. And you need to pray for people who persecute you, who wrong you. And who wants to do that? Or how about this one? He says at one point, he says, hey, you know, you've heard it said you shouldn't kill somebody. But he says, I tell you that if you even are angry with somebody, that in your heart you've committed the same thing. 
Or, or how about this one? This is a popular one for our culture. Um, you know, we all know what adultery is, and we all know that it's wrong and shouldn't be done. But he says, if you even look at somebody lustfully, like you've already committed adultery in your heart, turn the other cheek and forgive. I mean, who's going to do that? And so we look back now and we see these teachings and we see how these apply to us as humans and can make us better human beings. But you got to understand that that was not the driving force of why people follow Jesus. And that was not the driving force of why these men and women had given up so much to follow him. No, the centerpiece behind who and what he was and who and who he said he claimed to be was the reason that people followed him. They believed that he actually was Israel's Messiah, Israel's long-awaited king. At one point, Jesus, he looks at a crowd one day, and he, he claims to be greater than Moses. Now, that may not mean much to you and may not be offensive, but for a Jewish person, that is incredibly offensive. Moses is the one that started this whole thing. Moses is the one that gives us the Torah, the law, which is the foundation for our entire culture and civilization that we've been celebrating for thousands of years at this point as a Jewish person. And here is this guy just coming along and nonchalantly saying he's even greater than that. Or he says at one point, I'm even greater than the prophets. And, and their thing would be, how could you be greater than a prophet? The God sent the prophets. How can you be greater than the prophets unless God sent you? And then at one point, he does the ultimate offense. Jesus, one day, he stands out in front of the temple. And the temple was this thing that represents God and his presence here on earth and how we relate to God. And he stands in front of this building with all of its gold and jewels and its fanciness and all of the imagery and all of the history and all of the emotion that came with the temple. And he stands in front of it and he says, one that is greater than the temple is here. Which would have been about the most offensive thing that you could say in their region. And then one day he even looked at the disciples and he makes a claim, a claim that many believe is the ultimate reason that he ends up on a cross. And he says, do you want to know about God? Do you want to know what God's like? Well, then just look at me. And he says, if, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. See, what's fascinating is the disciples, they follow Jesus often in spite of what he taught. But the reason they followed is who they thought he was, and who he claimed to be. But as we pause in that moment, they were wrong. The Holy One of God, the Messiah of God, cannot be killed and definitely cannot be killed by a foreign power. And so when Jesus died, the movement died. See, Jesus made it earlier that he had come to establish something, a new church, a new ecclesia, a new movement, a new gathering, a new way of seeing the world and seeing God and understanding it. But when he breathed his last, so did all of that. And everybody unfollows Jesus. And they all flee when he's arrested. And so why did they do that? Well, they did it because they expected Jesus to do what dead people usually do. And that is stay dead. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they prepare his body. And on Sunday, we see these women that are going to the tomb. And it's important to, to know that, that on that Sunday morning, we, we hear all these poems, we hear all these things like Friday, Sunday's coming. You know, we know that in hindsight, but here's what you have to know. There was nobody standing outside the tomb that morning on Sunday going, five, four, three, two, 
cue the sunrise, right? Nobody was doing that. There were no believers. In fact, the reason the women are on that way to the tomb that morning is because they're going to re-prepare Jesus's body for burial. And so they're going to rewrap it and redo the spices because even though Nicodemus and Joseph had already done it, the women didn't think the men had done it right. Imagine that. So they're on their way that morning to redo it because they're going to seal the tomb and they're going to move on and they're going to try their best to go back to the way that it was before because another movement had been wiped out, another hope for Israel is gone, and Rome and the powers of this world had won again. Another leader, another hope crucified. And at this point in the story, we have to pause. And what we have to do is we have to fast forward about 350 years into the future. On February 27th in the year 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius, he passes a new edict, an edict that I know you're all familiar with, the Edict of Thessalonica, right? Y'all remember that one, right? No, none of you do. Okay, so here's why this is important. The Edict of Thessalonica was a brand new edict. And what's interesting is in this edict that he passes, he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now think about that. 350 years before this event, Tiberius is in his empire and doesn't even know that Jesus exists. When Jesus is crucified, it doesn't even make a blip on the radar. Rome, 300 years before, crucified this man who was the leader of what was considered a Judean cult. And now in 380, Rome considers this rabbi not only to be a god, but to be the god. In 380, Jesus wipes out and replaces the entire pantheon of Roman gods. Jesus wasn't Roman. Jesus had never been to Rome, never stepped foot inside of the city. So the question you should be asking when you hear that is, well, what happened? And then we need to fast forward today. See, see, there, there is no Roman Empire. But see, if you go to the city of Rome, and, and millions of people every year, they go to the city of Rome to visit. And, and it's a beautiful city. And, and when they go to the city of Rome, what often happens is they go there, and they do want to see part of the history. But very often, they're, they're not there to see the history of, of Caesar. Certainly not Tiberius, who most of you didn't even know existed until I just used his name. They go there to see where Paul was at. And they go there to see where Peter was at. In fact, what's interesting is 2,000 years ago, the reality is that the, the empire of Rome was, was filled with crosses. Jesus's was no different. And yet, if you go to the city of Rome today, it's still filled with crosses. For example, does anybody in this room have a cross? Anybody have a cross on or... Okay. See, when I say that, nobody thinks that it's weird. But if I was to say to you, hey, do you guys have those latest guillotine earrings, right? Or that real cool new electric chair charm everybody's wearing. You'd be like, what? See, the cross was a form of terror. 
the cross was an execution stake. And see, you now wear crosses and you go to Rome and there's crosses everywhere, but the crosses there do not represent Roman's cross crucifixion. It represents a single crucifixion. And the cross that once was representative of shame and terror and oblivion now represents hope, salvation, and compassion. And billions of people across the planet this weekend and today in places much larger than this and places much smaller than this will celebrate what happened on one cross and then what happened next. And if you would have went to those women as they walked down the road that day and you would have told them that, they wouldn't have believed you. And so if you've walked away, drifted away, or thinking about walking away from faith, here's the simple question that I want you to wrestle with. What happened? Because something extraordinary must have happened to bring all of this about. So what actually happened is recorded by a guy named Matthew, who was there. And then it's recorded by a guy named Mark, who believe, we believe got his information from Peter, who was there. And then Luke, who is this, this guy that's tasked and hired. And we don't even know if at the beginning if he was a believer, but he goes and he does all this investigating. And he's hired to do all this investigating. And so he goes around as a historian and talks to everybody that he can. And he eventually writes a gospel. And then there's John. And John writes a gospel. And then later, James, the brother of Jesus, enters into the story. Now, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Um, so James is the brother of Jesus, and not like brother like we say brother at church. Like he's physically the brother of Jesus. And we know that early on in James's story, James thinks that Jesus is crazy. It's written in the Bible. He thinks he's crazy. He doesn't believe that he's the son of God. And so eventually, James becomes a follower of Jesus, which let me ask you this question um, before you dismiss it. Um, what would it take for your brother or sister to convince you they were the son of God? Because James believed that his brother was, in fact, his savior. And so we have this moment where you have these guys and they're writing these stories. And then we have the apostle Paul, who I've already introduced, but you may not have picked up on him. We, we refer to him as Saul as Tarsus, who was a Pharisee who believed that his goal was to wipe out not only Jesus, but also this movement. But then he has an encounter with Jesus that changes everything, and he experiences something, and he goes on to write almost half of the New Testament, some of the most important documents that have ever been created about our understanding not only of Jesus, but of God. And so what happened? Well, I'll tell you a portion of John's explanation, and here's what he says. He says that early on Sunday, while, while it was Passover, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb with, with another woman, and she goes to the tomb, and the reason we already know they're there is they're, they're there to kind of re-prepare the body because they expect Jesus' body to be dead and to be sealed into the tomb and later to go back and get the bones. And when she gets there, the tomb is empty, and she doesn't know what to do. So the Bible tells us that she takes off and she rushes back into the city to find John and Peter and the other disciples to try to figure out what happens. Now, it's important to note here, when she sees the empty tomb, she doesn't go, it's a miracle, he's alive. She goes, what happened to the body? 
And she goes back to these disciples and, and she goes back to them and she's trying to tell them what happened. And there's this great line in the Bible, and no offense, ladies, but, but John and James and Peter look at her and, and they go, woman, you don't know what you're talking about. You ever said that, guys? They don't believe her. Now, it's worth important mention that in this story, what we see is the first people to see the empty tomb and to believe that possibly something is going on was women. See, the world's changed a lot, but in the first century, a woman's testimony was not considered worth anything. And so for the fact that the gospel writers say that the first people to experience this were women, if you were making this up, you wouldn't have said that unless that's what happened. And so the gospels tell us that Peter and the other disciple, and I love this part of the story because uh, John writes this gospel and, and the way he refers to himself, and this is awesome. He says that Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, you can tell this is written by men, right? And so they're on their way to the tomb. And on the way to their tomb, they start to take off and they run to the tomb. And John, because he's so modest, the one that Jesus loved, says, as Peter ran, the other disciple was faster. <laughs> and so they get to the tomb. And there they get. And they look in. And it's empty. The Bible tells us that when they saw this, that they believed. And it was because of something that they saw, something that they experienced. Later that afternoon, the Bible tells us that Jesus, very much alive, he visits the same apostles who had just given up, had decided to move on, who were in hiding and who had fled. A very much alive Jesus, he goes to them. And do you know what Jesus says to them? Do you know what his first words are to them? He says, would you like some bread? Because apparently when you die and re resurrect, it makes you really hungry. And the gospel writers tell us that upon hearing this and seeing Jesus, these men and women immediately re-engage with the message and the mission of Jesus. But they did not re-engage because of what he taught. And they did not re-engage because of something that they just believed. They re-engaged because of what and who they saw. They re-engaged because something had happened. And upon seeing a resurrected Jesus, these men and women will give everything, including their lives, because of what they saw that day. Because when a guy can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection and pull it off, you just do whatever he says. See, for them, it turned out that Jesus was everything he claimed to be and more. And we have to go back to those people just one more time and think about Peter, who had given everything to follow Jesus. And Matthew, the tax collector, who was an outcast in their culture, who nobody wanted anything to do with. And yet this one guy approaches him and says, come and follow me, and gives him a fresh start. And then Mary Magdalene, who wanted to believe that new life was possible, and that her past 
did not have to define her future. And all of a sudden, all of these things that Jesus had taught, all of these things that Jesus claimed, and all of these things that Jesus said upon what they experienced, they believed. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not a Bible story. We teach it like that. We, we teach it just like we teach all of the other stories in the Bible. But see, what you have to understand is the resurrection of Jesus is not a Bible story. The resurrection of Jesus is the story. It's the story. The foundation of your faith and my faith is an event. Because here's the thing. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we don't care what else the Bible says, do we? It's an event that, if true, changes everything. And here's how it intersects with your story and my story. So a couple things. First of all, it's an important historical question because, see, how in the world did the gospel even survive the first century in Rome and all of those things? I mean, that's a great question because something must have happened that made this survive because there's no other explanation for how it even survived. But it also serves a personal question as well. See, the personal question about the resurrection and what happens is this. See, all of us, most of us are here uh, for a couple reasons. We're here because someone told us we had to go to church or there was no ham, right? Um, or they told us we had to go to church or, you know, whatever. They threatened you. And so we're glad you're here. We're almost done, okay? Um, but for some of us, the reason we're here, the majority of us, is because we want to know where we stand with God, right? That's why we come. And the resurrection of Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection, it once and for all tells you where you stand. Paul will write this in Romans chapter 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, he died for us. And then he goes on to say, someone might be willing to die for a good person. And, and here's the thing. Um, I hate to tell you this. Um, we're not that good, right? I'm not either, so it's okay. But God demonstrates who he is. And here's why this is important. Because some of us were so confused about God and the way he views us. And, and do you know how God views your failure? Do you know how God views your sin? Do you know what God sees when he sees you? Do you know how God feels about you and feels about the human race? John, in his gospel, uh, he's remembering this day where Jesus, early on in, in his ministry, he's talking to this guy named Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus uh, that eventually helps put him into this tomb. And, and he's remembering this day where there's this interaction as he's writing all this down between Nicodemus and Jesus. And, and so Jesus is trying to explain this new thing that he's come to do and this new chance that he's giving, not only for the Jewish people, but for everybody and for the whole world. And, and so Nicodemus is kind of confused because there's like this rebirth stuff he talks about and all this stuff. And so he's confused. And so Jesus eventually kind of just breaks it down in plain language. And here's what he says. He says, in John chapter 3, he says, For God so loved the world. And in case you didn't know it, the world is you and me and all the other yous and me's out there. That God so loved the world that he gave. And John has this moment where he realizes that Jesus was his friend and his rabbi, but on the backside of the story, John realizes that Jesus was also a gift from God, his Savior. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever puts their trust, their faith, their weight, their burden, their confidence, whatever you can muster up, whoever puts whatever they can in this belief, they shall not be lost in God. And so where do you stand with God? Well, in spite of what you've heard and in spite of what Christians have told you or how Christians have treated you or how the church has treated you in the past, John says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. And imagine how those words felt for some people. And maybe for some of you, you've never heard that part before. So how does it sound to you that God did not send Jesus to condemn you, but to save you? To believe a new thing was happening. So these men and these women, they see this resurrected Jesus and they believe these words that God so loved the world that he sent his son not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Later, Paul will write a letter and he says this, now because of what Jesus has done on the cross and through his resurrection, peace with God has been made. Which means this, you don't have to try for it, you don't have to work for it, it's already been made. And so we can talk about Easter, and we can talk about lilies and bunnies and eggs and all that fertility stuff and Ishtar, and we can talk about all that stuff, and it's fun, and there's a bunny that dresses up and all that good stuff. But we can talk about all that, and it's fun. But what I like to talk about is resurrection, because resurrection's the story. It's the ticket. And so through Jesus and his resurrection, may this season we have a reason to hope, May we have a reason to believe a new thing is happening, a new day is here. May you have a reason to believe that peace with God has been made, not only with everyone, but also with you. May we have a reason to follow, and may for today we have a reason to celebrate. Let's pray.